We're looking this morning at Genesis 49, beginning in verse 29, and we're going to read down to chapter 50, uh, verse 26 to the end of chapter 50. And I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open. You'll find that on page 43 if you're using a church Bible, and you'll want to follow along closely with me as we look at this this morning. Genesis 49, verse 29, and we're going to look down to chapter 50. Verse 26. And before we do, let me briefly pray for us and then we'll look at God's word together. Father, we do thank you for the preaching of your word. You've told us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And you have said, how can they call on him of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they're sent? And you've told us that it's through the foolishness and the message preached that you have promised to save those who will believe. And so, our God, we pray that you would use this time and that the proclamation of your word would be for the salvation of the souls of every man and woman and boy and girl in this place. We ask, our God, that you would make us attentive, that you would remove distractions, that you would set our minds on things above where Christ is, that you would set our hearts and our desires on the Lord Jesus and a desire to hear him and to see him and to be with him and to love him more and to be drawn to him more. We pray, our God, that you would do these things in our souls this morning as your word is read and preached. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In Genesis 49, beginning in verse 29, we've come to the end of the book. This narrative that has most recently been focused on the life of Joseph from chapter 37 to 50, and now we come to the death of Jacob, the final uh, remembrance of Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, the head of the covenant at this point, and then we come to the death of Joseph. And so now we read, then he commanded them, that is, Jacob commanded his sons and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham brought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were brought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, and that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewn out for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And then I'll skip over for the sake of time the section leading down to the burying of Jacob to verse 14. And and Pharaoh there not only allows it, but, but he and a huge number of officials in Egypt go down to the funeral a striking picture of the honor God is giving Jacob. And now we pick up in verse 15 of chapter 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this commandment before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. 
And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children in the third generation of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, over the last five to ten years or so, I've noticed a trend on social media whenever someone famous dies, no matter what religion they profess to believe, no matter what doctrine they held to, Christians rush to social media to use the, the oft-thrown-out RIP so-and-so. When Muhammad Ali died, I saw a litany of people I follow on Twitter saying, rest in peace, Muhammad Ali. Now, to the best of our knowledge, Muhammad Ali was not a Christian. Um, he may have professed faith in, on, in his dying uh, moments. God may have regenerated him in his heart on his deathbed. We don't know. But there was no evidence that Muhammad Ali was a Christian. And so Christians, it seems to me, need to be very careful about how we think about death and how we speak about death. The Bible is very specific in how it speaks about death. We're not left to surmise for ourselves how we are to think of our own deaths or the deaths of others. The scriptures give us very clear indications about how we're to think and speak about this. And one of the things that happens as we come to the end of this book, very interesting, Genesis, because we could say on the one hand, chapter 50 essentially ends with the words to be continued. And on the other hand, a book that opens with life and creation and blessing, it seems so fitting that it closes with death because it is encapsulating the narrative of Genesis and it is encapsulating the narrative of scripture and it is encapsulating the narrative of our lives in this fallen world. It's fitting that in a world that opens with blessing and life upon the fall of man, death should take such a prominent place. And yet in the midst of that, there is this wonderful picture of redemption and grace and blessing, just as fitting as it is the death, the last great enemy should be highlighted. There is a way in which death is spoken of in Genesis chapters 49 and 50 that is unique to the Christian's death. It is a way in which believers are spoken about dying that almost, in a sense, beautifies death for the believer. It takes the sting away, and it shows, as the hymn writer said, that for Christians, for those who are in Jesus Christ, by faith, death is now our entrance into glory. You'll notice that the way Jacob is spoken of as dying there is as being gathered to his people. That's not actually said ever of unbelievers in the Bible. I would challenge you to do a study of how the scriptures speak of the death of believers 
and unbelievers. This is the prospect of eternal life. Jacob is gathered to his people. He has gone to be with Abraham and Isaac. He has gone to be with Sarah and Leah in glory. He has gone to be with the church of the living God in the heavenly places with the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look at this section this morning, and there's so much in this latter section in the book of Genesis, we want to see four things. First, we want to see hope exhibited. Secondly, we want to see unity restored. Third, we want to consider forgiveness granted. And finally, God's providence revealed. Well, as we've already noted, there is hope. This is a, a hopeful section. While the, the full realization of God's promises have not been obtained by the patriarchs, I mean, even at this point, they're still in Egypt. They're still in that little land of Goshen. They're still being preserved by God in a foreign land. The hopes of Jacob and Joseph don't center on having their ultimate fulfillment of God's promises in the here and now. That is such an enormous point because we spend the better part of our life convincing ourselves otherwise. And if we really were honest with ourselves and we were really honest about our actions and what we value and what we spend our time on and what we think and how we speak and the conversations we have with our spouses, it, it, it often reveals that our ultimate hope is in the here and now and if we can just secure the here and now and we can secure our, our needs and our desires in the here and now, everything will be fine. And Genesis doesn't allow us that. Genesis leaves off and they're not in the promised land. They don't have the promises fulfilled. They're still anticipating those promises. In fact, the whole idea of burial, as we saw in those chapters in which Abraham purchased that cave where he could bury his beloved Sarah, is all pointing forward to the resurrection. They are hoping in the resurrection. Why go to such great lengths? It's so much cheaper not to do that. Why care? There's no life in the bones. There's no life left in the body. Why, why make such a big deal about burial in the book of Genesis? Because they're hoping in the resurrection. It is the last great act of faith. They are dying in faith and they're saying, even though in the here and now, God has not fulfilled his promises, God is going to fulfill his promises and we are going to bear witness to others that he will fulfill his promises. You see, in a very real sense, Jacob's command to his sons to bury him is more him proclaiming the gospel to them than him actually caring about what happens to his bones. You see, he's sending a message. He is dying in faith. He's saying, just as surely as I know that I am about to die, I know for sure that God will fulfill his promises that he made to my grandfather and to my father that he confirmed to me at Bethel. This is a different Jacob, isn't it? It's very interesting. He's so different than the Jacob we met in the earlier parts of Genesis. He's a completely different person. He's not doubting Jacob. Remember, Jacob spent 14 years of his life working for Laban, and there wasn't one mention of God until the very end when he was leaving. You get the idea that he spent 14 years as an unspiritual man, even after God had appeared to him. But here, as he dies, there's this beautiful picture Jacob is dying in faith. And notice what he says. He commands his sons. He, he's blessed them. And now he commands them and says to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers. Bury me where Abraham was. Bury me where, where Isaac was. Bury me where Sarah was and where Rebekah was. And bury me where Leah was. Now that's important. Because remember, Jacob loved Rebekah, not Leah. And Humanly speaking, you would expect Jacob to tell his sons, I loved 
Rebecca, I want you to bury me next to my beloved wife. But you see what's happening here. Jacob is not, he is not speaking or acting in his last act according to the flesh. He is speaking and acting according to the promise of God and according to faith. It was through Leah that Judah would come. It was from Judah that the Redeemer would come. He sees God's hand on Leah and that branch of the family and God's redemptive purposes. And he is dying in faith. He is saying, I want to be where God has put his blessing. I want to be, I want to hope with them. You know, one day Jacob's going to rise from the dead. If, if his bones are still wherever on the face of the earth, they are in Israel. Um, he, um, he will rise out of that grave with Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Leah to see the Redeemer bring them back to life in glory, the promises of God fulfilled. That's, that's what Jacob is hoping in. That's what Jacob is longing for. He didn't want to be buried in Egypt. He was sure that God would bring about his purposes and fulfill his promises. And you see the same thing with the death of Joseph, don't you? He's dying in hope. He is the second most powerful man in the world. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't need to have a stake with these shepherd brothers that betrayed him. But, you know, Pharaoh treated Joseph better for the bulk of his life than Joseph's brothers treated him. And yet he wants to be with them. He wants to identify with the people of God by faith. Joseph wants his bones to be carried up into the promised land, which incidentally will be 400 years from now. This is before the bondage. This is before the oppression. This is before the exodus. Joseph doesn't see that physically, but he tells them certainly and by faith, God is going to do what God has said he will do. And I want you to carry my bones up. And then he is embalmed and he is put in a coffin. And we're not to think of that as a coffin that goes into the ground. He was set on display as a witness, as a witness to his brethren, that he believed that God would do as God has said he would do. Now, it's very interesting that um, Joseph, who I think is just this enormous type of Christ, and we've talked about that over the, the weeks, he's, he's one of the great types of Christ in the scriptures. Um, there, there's, not one, there's not one word about him and any aspect of his life in the New Testament. 14 chapters in a book of 50 chapters. Takes up a huge section. And the only thing that makes it into the New Testament is in Hebrews 11.22, by faith, Joseph, when he died gave his brethren instructions about his bones. That's it. The Holy Spirit saw fit that this is the most important thing you need to know, that Joseph died in faith. He knew with certainty and assurance that God was going to do what God had spoken. And so he told his brethren, when God brings you up, you carry my bones with you. Somebody just yesterday or two days ago was Reflecting on this, very interesting, outside of anything I had prepared in, in conversation with him, and, and he had said, he had read an article I had written on burial and, and how it points to resurrection, and he said, wouldn't it have been marvelous to see Israel marching out of Egypt, the Egyptians pursuing Israel, them coming to the Red Sea and being blocked off there, and somewhere in that great mass of Israelites, you have people carrying the bones of Joseph. And that means when God parts the Red Sea, Joseph goes through. And that means through all their sojourning in the wilderness, 
The bones of Joseph are there. And they're taking up the bones of Joseph until finally they enter the promised land. And that was, that was a testimony to the reality of the hope of believers in the lives of others. Here's the point. When we live by faith, we want to die by faith. And when we die by faith, it becomes a witness to others and it encourages the faith of others. And it is me- our lives are meant to have communal impact on others. The faith that we have personally and individually is not meant to be kept to, to ourselves. This is why people that, that think church is just, oh, I'll go to church a couple times a year. I, I don't really need a church. That They fail to see the enormous communal impact that God intends for believers to have when they walk by faith, when they live by faith, and when they die by faith. Every single thing that believers do by faith, including hoping in the hereafter and in the resurrection and the new creation and being with Christ on their deathbeds, has an impact on other people and other believers. I want to say this just as an aside. I hope that as you think about your death... um, that you would think, you know, I want to live by faith now and I want to die by faith. And I want that to be evident to others. I don't want to spend my life just wandering around, acting like this is it. It's the next thing, the next event, the next possession, the next house, the next car. Um, The Bible doesn't allow us that. And we don't want to allow ourselves that kind of mindset and reality. We want to be thinking about this. And notice that as Joseph is is exhibiting this hope in the hereafter. He actually does something very remarkable. It's interesting, too, just as an aside. um, When we've seen Joseph, every time he's spoken, and he hasn't spoken much, he actually doesn't speak a whole lot from Genesis 37 to 50, but every time he speaks, he has God on his lips. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't just speak about stuff. He always has the Lord before him. And here, as he is being reconciled to his brothers, and we're going to see secondly here this unity restored in the family, because as Jacob dies and as Joseph is interacting with his brethren about the death of his father, we, we, we see that the brothers are, the brothers are, are unified in a sense. They're, they're unified because their father and his faith has united them. Their brother and his faith has united them. There is this beautiful reconciliation. In fact, it's marvelous. It's marvelous because these were the brothers that never wanted to listen to their father. And remember, their father never wanted to be a godly father to them. This was the father that didn't rebuke Levi and Simeon when they went and slaughtered the Shechemites. This is the father that didn't rebuke his sons for their mistreatment to Joseph. This is the father who showed partiality to Joseph. This was a bad father for so much of his life. But here as he dies in faith, he unites his family. And we know that because his sons obey him. Isn't that a marvelous picture? Finally, his sons obey him. He says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to bury me in the cave that Abraham and Isaac are buried in. I want you to do that. And the sons are perfectly united together. There's this beautiful picture of restoration and transformation by God's grace, in part because now Jacob is living by faith. He has been, he's become the father that he always needed to become. There's a word there for us who are fathers. You know, um, anyone who really wants to be a godly parent often has great regret at their lack of godliness. Um, their lack of spiritually leading their family, their lack of 
disciplining their children, their lack of teaching their family the scriptures, their lack of leading their family in worship in the home. Um, And it's right. It's right that there should be. We should never just be comfortable with um, sin and failure. But there's a word here for anyone who wants to be a godly parent. Here Jacob, in his last act, is dying in faith and he's being the father he should be to his children. And that's uniting his family. There's a word there that today is a day to start living by faith, preparing to die by faith, and knowing that God uses that in the blessing of the family. This family, remember, uh, was so dysfunctional. I want to read to you something one theologian wrote. He said, this family has a story of lying, deceit, favoritism, covetousness, anger, sexual immorality, murder, and betrayal. It's the church. It's the only church on earth. I want to read that again. Lying, deceit, favoritism, covetousness, anger, sexual immorality, murder, and betrayal. He goes on to say, um, the most obvious dysfunctions in this family have been the generational alienation between fathers and sons. Isn't that interesting? That's been the biggest dysfunction is the alienation between fathers and sons. And now his sons become obedient to their father. Isn't that remarkable? When fathers come to live by faith, it has an impact on their children. It affects their families. It affects the next generation. In a very real sense, Genesis 50, uh, and the latter part of 49 and 50, is really saying one generation of faith is passing away, but God will continue generations of faith. And this is how he does it. He does it by that first generation walking by faith and exhibiting that faith and holding forth that hope, and that produces spiritual unity among other believers oftentimes. It's really a beautiful picture. Well, we see also, though, that there's forgiveness granted. Now, here's where Joseph's speech about the Lord comes to such a prominent place. Um, It's interesting. You might miss this if you didn't didn't look at this carefully. Um, Remember, There's already been reconciliation. There's already been reconciliation. And so when you come to this section, it ought to strike you as strange that the brothers are afraid of Joseph. I mean, he's hugged them, he's fell on their neck, he's wept on them, he's given them a feast, he said, it's me, it's Joseph, and then they're, they're preserved, they've been given this great land, the best land in Egypt, blessing upon blessing upon blessing, but they don't trust him. Now, remember, we've said Joseph is a type of Christ. And I think what you have here is a picture of how um, believers who oftentimes see the enormity of their sin uh, sometimes have a very hard time seeing the graciousness of the greater Joseph Jesus. And we don't trust him. They, look, notice what they say. Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. They said it may be, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Now, you have to think about this carefully. So often, we think about Jesus as not the forgiving, gracious Savior, but as the one who at the last day is going to decide, you know what, I'm not going to forgive you. I'm going to pay you back for everything you've done. Now, scriptures are clear. There's a reason why we tend to think of him that way. He is the just judge. He is not only the lamb, he is the lion. 
And, and yet, for believers, there is nothing but forgiveness in Jesus. For true believers, there is nothing but consolation and comfort. There is nothing but Jesus saying, fear not. Isn't that interesting, the language twice? Joseph says to his brethren, do not be afraid. That's the language of Jesus to the disciples. Do not be afraid. It is I myself. It's me. I'm here. I'm your Savior. I'm the Redeemer. I've come. I'm on. Remember, remember uh, when the disciples are fearful, Jesus is in the boat with them. The storms come, and, and they're afraid, and they go wake him up, and they said, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? They're really questioning him, like, well, maybe Jesus doesn't really care about us. Maybe he's really not for us, and I love the way Sinclair Ferguson puts it. He says, he was in the world, and he was on the boat, and he would hang on the cross because he cared. Joseph cares immensely about his brothers. Joseph is the forgiving redeemer. Very interesting, the second most powerful man in the world cries a lot. (laughs) So if you're not the kind of man that cries, um, take note. Second most powerful in the world. He's weeping everywhere. <laughs> and he weeps. That They don't trust him. And it breaks his heart. It breaks his heart that they don't trust him. That they would think that he would somehow. But see, what they're doing is they're treating him the way they would have treated someone else. They're really showing what's in their hearts. And we do that too. When we don't trust Jesus as we ought, we're really doing, we're really falling prey to the same thing that happens at the beginning of this book. Remember, what do they do at the beginning of the book? Satan says, you can't really trust God. Isn't that fascinating? You can't really trust God. That's the great lie that Adam and Eve believed. Here the brethren are believing that lie. You can't really trust the Redeemer. And notice he comes to them with that large uh, affection. They say, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sins. They did this evil to you. And, And notice what he says. He weps and he says, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? You see, Joseph brings it all into the the spiritual realm. He says, more, essentially, more than forgiveness from me, you need to know that your sins are forgiven by the Lord. The greater thing is that I am not, as here, just a fallen man. He is not God. That is not the most important relationship. He is pointing his brothers. He's saying, he's saying, my brothers, go to the Lord. Go to him who pardons and who has mercy and who forgive what you did. And then it's, it's, it's amazing because now, and I want to look at this fourthly, he, he moves from forgiveness granted to God's providence revealed. And he, he explains the mysteries. And and, and you know this, Genesis 50, verse 20, really is the theme of the whole book. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Right? Adam and Eve meant it for evil. God's eternal purpose was to bring good. I love the thought that, you know, if Adam and Eve had not sinned, we would never know the dying love of God. If Adam and Eve had never rebelled, and deserved hell. So the depths, right? They bowed and worshipped a tree and worshipped fruit. And they deserve eternal punishment for that. And, but then the only one who can judge them comes and takes that punishment on the cross. And says, this is how loving I am. Isn't that marvelous? Augustine called it the uh, Felix Culpa, the, the blessed fall, the happy fall. Joseph is essentially saying that to his brothers. He's saying, look, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Now, where do we see that most clearly? We see it at the cross, don't we? 
Peter almost echoes these words in the book of Acts. The apostle Peter is preaching and he says to the very people who crucified Jesus, he said, you took him by lawless hands. You murdered the holy and the just one. And then he says, but God foreordained that he would be offered up for the redemption of his people. You see that beautiful harmony. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And that means... That means as we look at the scriptures and we ask the great questions about the problem of evil, or perhaps when we just look at our own life and we ask the great questions about why am I so sinful? Why do I do the things I do? And why did God allow me to do this? And why have I done this? We are at one and the same time to look to the cross and we're to see what God has done to remedy that. And we're to see the dying love of Jesus and we're to be drawn to the Savior. And as soon as we are, we hear, you meant it for evil, Nick. You meant it for evil. But God means it for good. And somehow God out of this puzzle, isn't it, isn't it so interesting here at the end of Genesis? It's like, remember, Joseph has this multicolored jacket. And the end of Genesis is like this multicolored tapestry thrown over such a dysfunctional, sinful family. It's, a, it's multicolored grace. Isn't that amazing? It's, it's just wrapped over all God's people here. And essentially, it's teaching us that God, the sovereign God, is working all things out. You know, Jonathan Edwards said, and I think it's so helpful, that God ordains sin, because he does ordain all the sin. He ordained sin, not for the evil of it, but for the good that would flow from it. You know, the marvelous thing about this section is that with what little revelation Joseph had, we have so much more in the Bible, with what little revelation Joseph had, he sees that. Isn't that amazing? Because he has faith in the Redeemer. He, he doesn't see, he doesn't know about the cross. He doesn't, he, he, hasn't, he hasn't witnessed the Passover and the Exodus. He hasn't seen the Red Sea crossing. He hasn't seen all the signs in the wilderness. He hasn't seen the manna rain down from heaven. He hasn't seen them enter the promised land. He hasn't seen the establishment of the kingdom. He hasn't seen David come. He hasn't seen all that you get to see and all that I get to see. He hasn't seen the entire prophetic ministry. And he hasn't, he hasn't seen or heard John the Baptist say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He hasn't seen any of it. But what he sees, he sees clearly enough to understand that God is going to bring about his eternal purposes for the good of his people, for the blessing of those that are trusting him, for the redemption of them, and he is going to overthrow everything evil, and he is going to make all things new. Really, it's fascinating. The book of Genesis and the book of Revelation parallel each other. There's a garden and a garden. There's paradise. Paradise lost, paradise restored. There's the tree of life in both books. There are all those parallels. But one of these wonderful parallels is here at the end of Genesis and at the end of the book of Revelation, you essentially get this. Behold, I am making all things new. Now, I don't need to know you or to know much about your life to know that you need that. I don't need to know anything about your life because I know what the scripture says about you and what it says about me. And I know how dysfunctional our lives can be. And I know how dysfunctional marriages can be. And how dysfunctional parenting can be. And how dysfunctional everything can be. And yet, 
while we intend for evil and we have spent so much of our life sinning and doing what we want, God, by his grace, has been orchestrating it all, has brought his son into this world and promises to bless his people. Now, there's this really wonderful thought here at the end. Joseph, remember, always taking up the Lord's name on his lips. And, and Jacob did the same thing back in chapter 49. When they died, they said, uh, Jacob to his sons, Joseph to his brothers, God is going to go with you. God is going to go with you. God is going to bring you up out of this land. He is going to give you the inheritance. And they keep saying this. Very interesting. Notice verse 24 and 25. Notice this. He says it twice. That's important. Anytime anybody in Scripture is uttering things twice, it's calling, it's drawing our attention. Verse 24, notice, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you. God will visit you. And then notice verse 25. Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, God will surely visit you. Isn't that interesting? He's, he's placing this emphasis. Jacob did the same thing back in chapter 49. He said, I'm going to die, but God is going to go with you. God's presence is going to go with you. Now, all of this, of course, fits in that grand redemptive narrative of Scripture. And Jacob and Joseph at their death are in every way prefiguring the Lord Jesus in his death. You know, you can't even read through the Gospels without coming away with um, a sense of the consciousness Jesus has of what he came to do. Um, Gerhardus Voss, I think I've mentioned this to you before, uh, says that Jesus was the only person whose destiny and conscious purposes were one and the same. So what he was destined to do and what he knew he was doing every step of the way were one and the same. That's not true of us. A lot of times we're like, I don't even know what I'm doing. <laughs> Just want to sleep in. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> yeah, I got a lot of head noddings. Let me get an amen. <laughs> Jesus constantly spoke of his death. I must be handed over. I must die. He set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. He told the disciples repeatedly, I'm going to be handed over to sinful men, to the hands of sinful men. I'm going to be crucified and mocked and beaten and scourged and I'm going to die. And it's very interesting when he begins to develop that in the upper room discourse, he starts to say to his disciples, I'm going to die, but God is going to visit you. I'm going to send you another helper. I'm going to send you another comforter and he's going to be with you and I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the presence of God. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ is the other comforter. And God has promised, if you take God at his word and you trust in Jesus, he has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. In fact, I will dwell in you. I will be with you. I will seal you with myself. I will come and make my home in you. That's the great promise. That's what Jesus came to accomplish. And then I'll bring you to glory. And where I am, there you'll be also. And I'll visit you here and now by the Spirit. And I will visit you forever in my presence in glory in the new heavens and the new earth. That's, that's, that's all here in Genesis in acorn form. And that's what you have to fight to renew your mind with. And that's what you have to fight to believe because when you have a thousand other things around you, perhaps even your spouse telling you otherwise, 
This is what you have to fight to lay hold of and believe. This is what thrills your heart. And everybody wants to be happy, but so few people actually find real joy and happiness in what God intends you to, this and him, in his promise of being with us, his promise of indwelling us. It's why people don't go to church regularly to worship him, because they don't understand the joy and the happiness of having God and being in his presence. And they think it's all out there, on the water, on a boat, traveling, none of that. The Bible says here is the ultimate chief end of man, to glorify God and to enjoy him who is with us forever. Now, can we say rest in peace? Yes. When, when a man or a woman or, or a boy or a girl is trusting in Jesus and they come to that point where they're dying, they have already been purchased by the blood of Jesus. The Bible says he has made peace through the blood of his cross. Um, the costly nature of that rest and that peace is that Jesus had to suffer and have no rest and no peace under the wrath of God. And so when a believer dies, the Bible speaks of believers as falling asleep in Jesus. It's one of the most beautiful terms in the Bible. Jacob is gathered to his people. Joseph is also gathered to his people. But they are asleep in Jesus, waiting the resurrection. Their bodies are still here, united to the Savior. But they are at rest and they are at peace. You know, I, I want to say this as we close, because I think you can kind of summarize everything we've talked about this morning under those two heads. Who doesn't want rest and who doesn't want peace? I do. I mean, if you could just have rest and peace in every relationship, in every interaction, we're not going to have it here. But if you're trusting in Jesus, we will have it for all eternity, and we can die knowing that even though we've meant so much for evil, God has done everything for his grace and his purposes and his goodness and to be with his people and to give his people that rest and that peace. That's why Jesus could stand and say, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Isaiah says that he was wounded for our transgressions. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Let him who has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, we do pray that you would make these truths a reality in our souls experientially, that you would make us to know true rest and true peace in Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us your Spirit, even as you have already given your Spirit to us, and that you would come and you would visit us as we come to the table we pray that you would visit us. We pray that you would be with us. We pray that you would remind us that where we meant so much sin for evil and where so much sin abounded in our lives, you meant good and your good grace has superabounded. And so, Father, we pray that you would prepare us to come to the table. We pray that you would give us a greater sight of the forgiveness that we have in Christ, the unity that we have in Christ, the reconciliation that we have in Jesus. And we pray, our God, that you would give us great hope, both in life and in death. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.